has authority. And he does have authority over all creation, for he has the power to enforce his decisions and decrees and fulfil his promises. He should especially have authority in the lives of his people, people whom he has made his own by saving them through the death of his son, who should embrace with joy his instruction because they know his love and wisdom. And of course the authority of God is a unique authority. It's without any limit, for his might and wisdom have no limit. It extends over all the spheres of human life, our conversation, our relationships, our sexuality, how we use our intelligence, for these are all his gifts created and sustained by him. His authority extends over all life, all people, the whole universe. And it's distinct from every other source of authority and over them all, for he is creator. And every other authority we might acknowledge in our lives, whether it's that of our parents or our teachers, our tradition or our own reason, is actually creaturely and so finite and limited and affected by sin. And so God's authority is an authority that's overall and that is unaccountable to any other than himself. God has authority to direct our thoughts and actions and to claim our trust. And it's God's authority that lies behind whatever authority the Bible has in our lives. To the extent that it is the word of God, that is the extent of its authority and the extent to which we should conform thought and action to its teaching. Our differences in people's understanding of the extent to which the Bible is the word of God is one of the main reasons for difference in their response to the same-sex marriage question. Uh, the other major reason for those different responses amongst Christians is differing views as to how the Bible should be interpreted. Now, they're not the only reasons, but they're two of the principal reasons for the differing responses. And, of course, those two are not unrelated, as we'll see, for what you think the Bible is determines to a great extent how you read it, how you interpret it. So in response to the issues about authority in the Christian life thrown up by the same-sex marriage debate, uh, tonight we're going to think about why we believe the Bible, in the words of the Westminster Confession, is God's word written, and why that is really the only consistent position for those who call Jesus Lord. To believe the Bible is God's word written. And so that's from the Confession uh, chapter 1, section 2, under the name of Holy Scripture or the Word of God written. Uh, now contained all the books of the Old and the New Testament. And you'll notice that I have included the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, in the handout and uh, at the back of your handout. And that's because I think it is one of the finest confessional statements on the Bible summarising what we believe about the Scriptures. And if you've never read it, uh, I don't suggest you read it immediately, uh, but uh, it is worth reading and thinking because it is a very fine statement on, on the Bible. So that's what we're going to do uh, uh, tonight, uh, why we believe the Bible is God's word written. And then on the 18th, a fortnight from now, we'll be looking at the question of how we interpret the Bible. We plainly live in a world where there are multiple competing interpretations of Bible passages uh, so how can we have confidence in our interpretation? How can we discern true from false interpretations? More importantly, does the Bible give us a way of reading and interpreting it?
consistent with its claims about itself. See, if the Bible is the word of God, then it is an ultimate authority, one that stands over all others, and that includes in its own interpretation. It is the final authority on its own interpretation. And that question of interpretation is plainly an important question for a Bible that can't be understood and applied with confidence is an authority in name only. It has no practical authority. And in between tonight and the 18th, that is next week, we'll actually look at whether we can be confident that the Bibles you and I read are reliable, that we have what God moved the prophets and apostles, the foundation of the church, to write. So we'll be looking at the issues of canon, why do our Bibles contain the books they do and not others like the Gospel of Thomas, the question of text, how is what the apostles and prophets wrote been handed down to us because we don't have any of the original autograph, anything that has actually, say, Paul's signature on it uh, and uh, also translation, what lies behind the differences in our English translations and do they matter. So tonight, why should Christians believe the Bible is the word of God, God's word written? And what should flow from that belief in our attitude towards the Bible? So firstly, this is a talk uh, for Christians. This talk is to convince Christians that in being a Christian, they are committed to receiving the Bible as God's word, the word of God written, with all that means for its authority and reliability. And so this is not a talk about why someone who is not a Christian should receive the Bible as the word of God. In fact, I think the approach that seeks to persuade someone of the truthfulness of Scripture and then about Jesus being Saviour and Lord is actually the wrong way round entirely. As we'll see, Christians believe the Bible to be the Word of God because they are convinced of Jesus, convinced from the Gospel account and from their own acting upon the Gospel account to call upon Jesus. They're convinced that Jesus is the living Lord. Conviction about Jesus comes first, comes by God's grace from hearing the gospel as the word of God and conviction about the Bible comes with conviction of Jesus. You see, somebody doesn't need to be convinced that the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, are God's word before you can have a conversation with them about Jesus. All you need to persuade them of is what is in fact the case that those Gospels are first century eyewitness accounts to Jesus. Uh, that's a great conversation to have with some of that they can actually think that what they read in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John are first century eyewitness accounts. It's a great conversation to have and a fruitful one because you actually end up talking about Jesus and the apostolic witness to Jesus. You can just put it in their hand and say, this is what the eyewitnesses heard and saw in Jesus. What do you think of Jesus? That's, that's a, a profitable conversation. Uh, uh, and, and you're not having conversations about explanations for the differing dates in Kings and Chronicles for the reigns of the kings of Israel and Judah, which is, generally speaking, a manifestly unprofitable conversation. You might be into it, but anyhow. And there are some very helpful books there. The book by Lee Strobel and uh, the, Is the New Testament Reliable by Paul Barnett, the whole series of helpful books in that regard. So this is a talk for Christians. It's why if you say you're a Christian, you should believe that the Bible is God's word written. Uh, secondly, uh, as I've said, there is diversity amongst people who call themselves Christians in the extent that they think the Bible is the word of God. 
And you may have noticed that even amongst your own church-going acquaintances. So I'll just run through uh, some of the options. I'll pause on a, a more modern one. But so, for example, some believe the events behind the biblical record are revelatory, but the record itself is a purely human record. So <coughs> they think there were real acts of God, but the scriptures are merely human reflections on these, recording the impression of God's revelatory acts. The Bible, we might say, this is Ward, is not itself the revelation of God, it's the church's witness to the revelation of God in Jesus, an expression of the diversity of human responses to that revelation. Now, so, so the Bible really is just a fully human work. But this view betrays an inadequate view of God. He's actually sovereign over all events. And what makes one set of events revelatory is the interpretation given to those events for which you need words. For a certain set of events to be revelatory of God, for example, the Exodus, you actually have to have a God-given interpretation. So you've got to have words. A second view is that God uses the fallible human words to give a revelation of himself, just as he used fallible experiences to give others a revelation of himself. But they would say that both the events and the record of the events are the means of revelation, not revelation itself. And here the Bible is, in a sense, a report that there has been a revelation, but not the record of that revelation as the events were not a revelation, so their record is not a revelation, but just as God could use the original events to bring about an encounter with himself, so he can still use the record to function in some way as a means of divine encounter. But there's a lot of subjectivity uh, in that, and it's very hard to come to a common mind. Now, a modern variant on this is expressed by uh, Rob Bell. I, I was trying to... I thought I ought to read somebody who's a bit more modern. Have you heard of Rob Bell? Yeah, yeah, if you haven't, you don't need to worry about it. But it's an example I wouldn't uh, recommend. But so, so as I think, I've, I think I've put it in the outline. So, so when he's talking about the Bible, and it takes him a long time. His, his book is, uh, you know, what's, uh, what's the Bible? <laughs> but it takes him a long time to get to actually tell you what the Bible is. So what do people mean when they say that this library of books written by people is the word of God? Well, what they're saying, this is his words, is that they find this library of books to be a reliable record of what the ongoing, unfolding, creative work of God looks like in the world. And the Bible's definitely not God addressing us in this way in any unique way. That ongoing creative work of God is going on all the time according to him. And so the book operates by kind of question and answer. The question is, but can't you experience that through lots of books, lots of other words, lots of other experiences? His answer, of course. That's something the writers of the Bible say often. It's as if the writers keep saying, open your eyes, look around, listen and pay attention. God is always speaking the whole thing, by which he means the whole world and all of your life is a word. Now, the word of God is the creative action of God speaking in and through the world, bringing new creation and a new life into being. And the Bible is inspired in much the same way that you are inspired. And it has authority only when you choose to give it authority. So again, the Bible is a human record of experiences of God 
but he'd like to use the language inspired, but not inspired in any unique way because God's always at work in the world and in everyone and everything. So there's no unique authoritative word. And still others will say some of the Bible is God's word. Other parts are just the human writer giving his own interpretation or reflection on his experience of God, which is, however, culture-bound and may sometimes be wrong. And you need the church or scholarship to tell you which is which. So this is the view that there is, in a sense, a revelation within the revelation, a gospel within the gospel. It's sometimes spoken of in terms of the church hearing in the Bible the word of God. So the Bible's not the word of God, but the church hears in the Bible the word of God. So an example of that is in Why Does the Uniting Church Ordain Women? That's a little booklet they put out. And so, for example, in that booklet, Galatians 3.28, where there's neither male nor female, that is actually gospel, and that's the word of God. But the bit about 1 Timothy 2, where it says, I don't allow women to preach to have authority, that is just Paul's time-bound, culture-bound instruction to the Ephesians at that time. So that's another option. Now, what all these have in common, these alternate views, is that scripture itself is not uniquely the word of God in its entirety. It may be a mixture of divine and human words or a word used by God, but it's not God's word itself in a way that's different from all other human words. Scripture or some parts of scripture is merely human words, perhaps with elevated subject matter, perhaps helpful for reflection, perhaps helpful to living, and perhaps just wrong. There are parts you don't need to listen to, or at least you should listen to them as just human reflections on what is happening with all the limitation of a human reflection where people are ignorant of what will come later, where they're cultural bound in their presuppositions about right and wrong and they're limited in their insight. So there are these alternate views of what the Bible is out there amongst uh, churches and groups that call themselves Christian. But what I want to argue tonight is that uh, there is a position on the Bible that all who confess Jesus as Lord must hold, and that is that the Bible written down by people, and so genuinely human words, is also what it claims to be God's word, God's word written. And in a sense, to this first part, there are three parts to the argument. Firstly, uh, this is Scripture's self-understanding. Secondly, this is the only position consistent with receiving the gospel. And thirdly, this is the only position consistent with our confession of Jesus as Lord, the confession believing the gospel brings us to make. <coughs> so let's uh, start. Oh, yeah, let's start. Now, the Bible's own claim for itself is clear, isn't it? Uh, as a cursory reading of the Bible would tell you, God reveals himself in words, the words of the Bible. We, we get used to that from the prophets and there are a lot more references in the handout than I'm going to look at. But So, for example, Isaiah 1, Hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I read children and brought them up. The Lord has spoken and Isaiah is giving you in writing what the Lord has spoken. That's a consistent claim of the prophets. The written word is... Uh, represents no problem, it's to be, uh, it, it is the word of God and to be received as such. And of course the prophets don't initiate that. This is at the heart of Israel's uh, faith. 
Exodus 24, when Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. So they started Sinai thinking, you can write down God's word and it's still God's word. And a classic example is Jeremiah 36. Uh, uh, King Jehoiakim uh, had heard Jeremiah's revelation being read by Baruch and it was written down and uh, he used to, as it was winter, and so uh, as Baruch was reading it to him, no, not Baruch, the other book, but anyhow he just cut it off and threw it in the fire, showing what he thought of this word from God. Anyhow, this is God's response. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Take a scroll and write on it all the words I have spoken to you concerning Israel, Judah and all the other nations. God doesn't think that having his word written down is a problem or that it should be treated with any less respect than if you were listening to God himself. And of course, uh, <coughs> this view we'll see shared by a law, but about the resurrection of the dead. Have you not read what God said to you? The written word is what God says. Or 1 Corinthians 14, Paul thinking of his own words. If anyone thinks they're a prophet or, or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I'm writing to you is the Lord's command. The Bible's self-understanding is that it is the word of God written and nothing less. And so we ought to conceive of the scripture as a written public record of God's revelation to its characters and authors, which are themselves the word of God of enduring authority and absolute necessity if we are to know God because you can't know God any other way than through God himself speaking. Because uh, he can't be observed and he doesn't give anything away involuntarily. So God has to reveal himself to be known. Now this understanding of the Bible is consistent with the gospel we believe as Christians believing which makes us Christians. And we have to be clear about that. You're a Christian if you believe the gospel. The gospel brings with it certain implications. And thinking of the Bible, the written word, as the word of God is consistent with the nature of the gospel, the response the gospel calls for, and its content. <coughs> and the gospel really is the starting place for all our theology. And it's in the gospel that we confess we have heard the word of God. As Peter Jensen said, so fundamental to the knowledge of God is the gospel that we may properly regard it as the type of paradigm of true revelation. Well, let's think about the gospel. You know, that message that Christ has died for our sins and risen again. That comes to us as the address of the sovereign God demanding a response, doesn't it? It comes to us as the address of the sovereign God demanding a response. And so it is a personal address in words which comes as a summons from God. Our Lord, the time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come here. Repent and believe the good news. That's a command from God. Or Paul speaking in Acts 17. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. The gospel comes as a summons from God. And it is, of course, a summons to die to yourself. Now, you need to think about that. 
Because only God who can give you life can have a legitimate claim on your life. This is an improper demand unless it's the demand of God. To lay down your life, to find life in following Jesus. So it comes to us as an address from God. It's an address that focuses on Jesus. The gospel has content uh, recounted to us in human words. It's through the written word that we know about those particular events that happened at a certain time and place in history, the event of Jesus' death and resurrection. And of course, you see, the gospel recounts only things God can do. So you already think that God can be involved in human life, uh, that he can actually be involved, make a mark on history, because only God can raise the dead. And the gospel has a context. These are events that God has undertaken to fulfil the scripture, that he died according to the scriptures, that he was raised according to the scriptures. So the idea of scripture, the word of God written down for a permanent public testimony to the plan, purpose and promise of God is actually inherent in the gospel. That is the context for our understanding Jesus' death and resurrection. Oh, and more, the gospel brings to us the promise of God. And promises essential, and Peter Jensen again asks you to think about promises. Promises are always to do with the future and they are necessarily verbal because of that. They have to come to you in words. And so they can only be received by faith and when received they create relationship. Now the gospel promises forgiveness of sins and eternal life. That is, it promises things which only make sense if they are promises of God. So it's a valid promise, only if it is the promise of God himself. And yet that promise has to come to us in words. God has to be able to speak to us. Uh, they, they have no validity if that promise of forgiveness of sins and resurrection from the dead is just some human inference from what happened in the life of Jesus. And those promises call for the response of faith. That faith is in God, the God who promises, not in the human speaker or writer of the gospel, because they can neither forgive you nor raise you from the dead. In fact, unless the gospel has come to you as a promise from God, I have no idea what you are doing being a Christian. Right? It makes no sense at all. You're wasting your time. So when you act on this command and promise, you're actually obeying God. Commands and promises that come in words. Turning back to God, trusting God, not obeying people or turning back to people or trusting people. And you are saying God speaks, God speaks in human words. That comes with believing the gospel. So the Christian starting point is that God speaks, speaks to us in human words, human words which are at the same time God's words in which, which can be and have been written down. And we know this because he, if we're believers, he has spoken to us in his son Jesus, whom he's made Lord of all. And believing this gospel, he has done for us what only God can do, forgive us and give us his spirit. So to be a Christian from the outset is to know that you have been addressed by God in the gospel. It's not just a revelation of events. They're not just human words. And you can't go on in the Christian life by abandoning this reality. 
by starting to think that scripture, the record of the gospel and what the gospel fulfills is only human words. To be a Christian is to receive this gospel as the Thessalonians did, uh, to receive it as the very word of God. We thank God continually because when you receive the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word but as it actually is, the word of God which is indeed at work in you who believe. And of course, the content is the gospel is Jesus. And so before we look at uh, what Jesus' Jesus' own relation to the scripture, I want to pause and think about how what we believe about Jesus helps us think about God making himself known, making himself known in human words. So what we confess of Jesus is actually the foundation for our thinking about the Bible as the revelation of God. God making himself known in and through its written words. Jesus is intimately, inextricably involved in what we think about the Bible and that's not just in terms of his testimony to it in his life and speech. No, it's actually because of the way he is integrated with the whole concept of God revealing himself, revealing himself to his people, revealing himself through history, revealing himself <coughs> in scripture. And he's uh, integral to it because he is the climax of all God's dealings with this, of all God's revealing of himself to save. So Jesus is ultimately the content of that written revelation. Remember Jesus said, beginning with the Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And Jesus is the climax and vindication of all the revelation given in scripture. It's plain as we'll see that the New Testament regards the Old Testament as pointing towards and reaching its fulfilment in the revelation of Christ. Further, it's the New Testament fulfilment that vindicates the truthfulness of the Old Testament, especially its vision of the future and its doctrine of God and its promise that God himself would come and save. And so as N.T. Wright says, when Jesus spoke of the scripture needing to be fulfilled, he was not simply envisaging himself doing a few scattered and random acts which corresponded to various distant and detached prophetic sayings. He was thinking of the entire storyline at last coming to fruition and of an entire world of hints and shadows now coming to plain statement and full light. This, I take it, is the meaning of the sayings like Matthew 5, 17 to 18, where Jesus insists that he's come not to abolish the law, but to fulfil it. Thirdly, Jesus himself is the foundation of revelation. The word became flesh and we beheld his glory, writes John. Here is the assurance that God can effectively bridge the gap between creature and creator and also overcome the barrier of our sinfulness. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. There was, in a sense, a provisionality to all revelation before Christ which only the incarnation removes. It is the incarnation's reality that makes all that came before it possible and purposeful. Jesus also brings home the distinctiveness and necessity of revelation because what we see in scripture is the revelation of the word become flesh and that brings home the distinctiveness of the God revealing himself in scripture. 
is the revelation of one God in three persons. And so that sets Christian revelation in the Bible apart from all others. Uh, this is actually the source of its exclusiveness, that Jesus is the only way to the Father. It also means because Jesus is the Word become flesh, because God is Father, Son and Spirit, we can have a genuine revelation of the holy living God through Word and Spirit. Where there is no Word who is God and Spirit who is God from God, there actually can be no revelation. Uh, now, people will, maybe if you're Muslim, you might want to contest that, but it's actually true. It's an insoluble problem. If God is just transcendent, and a monist, uh, you actually have a really big problem. You actually can't know God. You can know a mediated view of God through human, but it's always refracted through creatureliness. Whereas actually with the doctrine of the Trinity, you know God uh, from God. And as Jesus is God, to know Jesus, revelation is necessary for God can only be known through himself. Now, Jesus is also, what we believe about Jesus underlines the finality of revelation because of the fullness of revelation of God in Christ and the effectiveness of what God does in Christ. So the person and work of Jesus is the key to the finality of New Testament revelation. That is the testimony of those appointed witnesses by the Son. In Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. And thus there is no further fuller revelation of God possible than the one made in Jesus. And so any other claim to be a revelation of Jesus is actually a regression and detraction. Any other claim for revelation of God that comes after Jesus is regression and detraction. It will be a distortion because the fullness of God, the revelation of the fullness of God has already happened in Jesus. And because his work is effective, that is, he saves his people, no further revelation is required. You cannot know more of God than you can know in Jesus, for he who has seen him has seen the Father. It is the content of New Testament revelation, not its manner of inspiration, which determines its finality and sufficiency. And we'll come to those terms, Lord willing, towards the end of the second hour, if you're an optimist. Uh, its content... Uh, it is its content, Jesus, that makes Christian revelation unique, unrepeatable and final. And that's important to remember in any discussions of prophecy or claims to further revelation. Also, the fact that Jesus is, is the content of revelation underscores the character of the revelation in Scripture, personal, particular and redemptive. The incarnation enshrines and gives ultimate expression to the character of all preceding revelation as personal, that is, a real person relating to particular people and using all the means of personal communication, tangible presence, deeds, words, which are all the means of communication in personal relationships. So it's personal, it's particular, that is, it's limited in time and space as real people are, and it's redemptive. This, I suppose, is a time to tell you to turn your phones to silent. Sorry about that. Right. It's going to happen one day. Um, yeah. Uh, which, so it's particular. And again, we, we need to get that. The glory of Christian revelation is its particularity because it happens to real people in real times and real places. Uh, it is particular. 
and uh, but it's to real people and it's God who makes relationship possible who wins us for himself in this revelation and finally it is particular revelation that is universal in scope. That's true, the revelation of Jesus is particular because he's a real man, but he's the saviour of the world. So it's a particular revelation that's universal in scope and that makes what we call inscripturation, that is the preservation of the witness to this revelation by having it written down absolutely necessary. It is Jesus, the event of Jesus, that makes the creation of scripture necessary. When we see the nature of revelation in Jesus, we see that special revelation makes scripture a necessity if others are going to know its occurrence and content. As the incarnate one is creator of all, the God of all, then it is certain that this is for all, just as certain as that that revelation is genuinely particular. It is the reality of the word becoming flesh that makes inscripturation of revelation necessary and inevitable. And this necessity of communicating the, this special revelation already suggests what the character of that inscripturated revelation will be. It will be adequate to its content and purpose. So it will be a word from God. Further, it suggests that inscripturated revelation is not to be contrasted with the event of revelation, but to be seen in continuity with it as its public permanent record, which is itself revelatory and meant to be revelatory for all those not present when Jesus walked in Galilee. This revel revelatory aspect is no surprise at all. It is the nature of words to reveal and relate and God sent Jesus to save the world. He wants the world to know. And so denial of scripture as the word of God is actually either a denial of the person of Jesus or of the significance of his work, or of the universal nature of his ongoing mission. You really can't separate Jesus from a commitment to the Bible as the word of God at the level of who he is and what he's done. But actually you can't separate Jesus from a commitment to the Bible as the word of God uh, in terms of his own life and teaching as well. So... Uh, you might uh, hopefully at this point say that if, you know, I see that if I'm a Christian, someone who's believed the gospel, my starting point has to be that God speaks in human words, words that can be written down as the gospel has been. And I may even see uh, that Jesus being the Son of God and Saviour of the world requires a written word. And so maybe I'll see that the gospel is the word of God. But you're thinking to yourself, what about the rest of the Bible, the embarrassing bits like oh, bits of Genesis or Sodom, well that's Genesis too, or all those imprecatory Psalms, you know, they're the Psalms that really want the enemies of God's people to get it. What about those? And we're all about em embarrassed about those. You know, are they the word of God too? Well, the gospel brings us to confess Jesus as Lord, as the Son of God, so what Jesus believes about scripture ought to be what we believe about scripture. And here's an apology for those of you who have already done Bundy Connect because there's a bit of repetition here as well as a bit of expansion. Uh, and I'm going to present to you the evidence for Jesus' attitude to scripture. Uh, there are lots of references in the handout and we can always uh, do more of them. But as we go through it, I want you to note how extensive the evidence is and how central it is to Jesus' life and work. 
how it's actually at the core of his understanding of who he is and what he's doing. So that to attempt to separate Jesus uh, from his from this uh, witness to his life and uh, from this witness to his life and work, to attempt to separate him from what we see here to be the, his attitude to the Bible, is actually to leave you with almost no Jesus at all. So, so let's think now about Jesus' attitude to the scripture. Well, Jesus' attitude to the scripture starts off, he's a Jew, he personally submits to it in his daily patterns. He goes to the synagogue to listen to God's word. On the Sabbath day, he tells the leper to go and show himself to the priest as Moses commanded. His family is a pious family that kept the law that goes up every year uh, to the Passover. So in his daily patterns, he is a law-keeping uh, a Jew. Oh, when he comes to temptation, remember the story, the tempter comes to him, so there's the first one. Now, Jesus responds to every temptation by saying, it is written. He actually responds by quoting scripture. And the thing to note is that even when the devil quoted scripture, you know, uh, throw yourself down because God said he'll command his angels concerning you, even when the devil quotes scripture, Jesus in his response does not reject the authority of scripture. He doesn't say, oh, look, you can make the Bible mean whatever you like. No, he just rejects and corrects its wrong use and responds, it is also written. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. So Jesus, in a sense, governs his life by the word of God. And his <coughs> commitment to scripture is especially seen in his commitment to the fulfilment of scripture in his life and particularly in death. So remember Luke 4, 18, uh, he's reading the scriptures uh, he's reading Isaiah 61 in the synagogue in Nazareth and he says, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing and especially in relation to his death. There's this notion of necessity. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, must suffer many things. Or again, Luke 18, 31. We're going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. Or in Matthew 26, on the night before he dies. This very night you will all fall away from me, for it is written, or again, this took place, that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Now let's just pause and think about that notion of necessity. What does that mean? Well, this emphasis on fulfilment actually implies the God-givenness of Scripture, doesn't it? Because he's saying, well, the Scripture speaks of this future that I'm now come to do, but who can actually tell the future with certainty? Only God can tell the future with certainty. The fact that Jesus thinks that this word that was spoken hundreds of years before will, must be fulfilled, is his commitment to this word having been spoken by God. And he's speaking of his death, and yet he still conformed his life to these words spoken hundreds of years before. Now, why would you do that? Because you actually think it's a revelation of the will of God. And Jesus said, not my will, 
but yours be done. So his commitment to fulfilment is a commitment, is an indication that he believes the scriptures are written uh, by God. And it's not incidental, is it? It's right at the heart of who Jesus is and what he's thinking, uh, what he thinks he's doing. You see, even from the cross, he is quoting scripture, Psalm 22, 1 or Psalm 31. So his insistence that his death was in fulfilment of the scripture is an insistence that the scriptures really are the word of God, reveal God's plan and purpose. Oh, Jesus uh, uses uh, throughout his uh, teaching. Uh, Jesus' teaching is, is rich in uh, the language of the Old Testament. Just a couple of examples. Mark 8.31, having eyes but fail to see, ears but fail to hear. It's really uh, an allusion to Jeremiah 5 or Mark 9. The worms that eat them do not die, an allusion to Isaiah 66. His own language, in a sense, and his imagination are just full of Scripture. Uh, he turns to Scripture as an ethical guide, whether it's the command uh, to love or whether it's in relation to divorce and the conflict about divorce, Matthew 19 as we'll see, or whether it's going to be about the resurrection or duty to parents. Jesus turns to the scripture. Matthew 19 is particularly interesting. Some Pharisees came to him to test him and asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And Jesus responds, haven't you read? So he's talking about the written word, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother. But of course that verse, uh, Genesis 2.24, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother, is not in the mouth of God in the Genesis account. It's what the editor of Genesis, or whoever, Moses, right, whoever wrote. So Jesus is saying that what is written in scripture is what the creator has said. Or uh, Mark Seven, you know, this dispute about hand washing. Here Jesus distinguishes scripture from all human words, the word of God from all human words. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. These people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he goes on to quote Moses and the command to respect your parents. There is a word of God, written word of God, found in the scripture and there are human words. So he uses an ethical uh, guide. And again, Jesus lived and taught in an atmosphere of controversy where his opponents were keen Bible students. And the basis of argument was differing interpretations of the scriptures. Now, Jesus never rejected the appeal of his opponents to Scripture. He questioned both their understanding of and submission to it, but he never questioned their commitment to Scripture as the word of God. Uh, Jesus' uh, speech is full of allusions uh, to the historical figures of Scripture, even those we uh, find uh, a bit embarrassing you know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Lot's wife, Noah, you know, Manna, Moses, the events in David. It's just his, his speech is saturated with the scripture. 
And not only does Jesus use, illustrate his familiarity with the Old Testament, no, he accepts them as history. Uh, he accepts as history what many would reject as literary creations. This is particularly noticeable with his use of Noah, Jonah and Sodom and Gomorrah to give warning to his hearers about their response to himself. And he does, you know, he says it'll be more tolerable, speaking of Capernaum, he says it'll be more tolerable on the Day of Judgment for Tyre and for Sodom and Gomorrah. <coughs> as Perone says, are we to think that Jesus is saying that imaginary persons who at the imaginary preaching of an imaginary prophet repented in imagination shall rise up and condemn actual impenitence of those, the actual impenitence of those of his actual hearers. The warnings would lose force and credibility if Jesus did not accept those events as real. And uh, Jesus, of course, uh, uses scripture to teach of his own significance. Uh, we've seen some of that in... <coughs> Uh, chapter 2, but think of his use of the Son of Man sayings where he actually uses Daniel 7. Again, the scriptures are full of it, especially, say, John's Gospel, his comparison to the temple in John 2, his comparison Moses in John 6. As we'll see <coughs> in John 5, he teaches uh, that the scriptures speak of him. And Jesus, of course, has direct statements concerning the Old Testament. So don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfil them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the eternal, the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law. And again, he's talking about the written law, least stroke of a pen, until everything's accomplished. That is, it has eternal validity. <coughs> John 10 and this is part of an important argument. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot uh, be set aside. And Jesus' use there depends upon God speaking in the psalm he's quoting as gods because he's saying, actually, if it's all right for scripture to call humans gods, that is for God to call human gods, well, why is it wrong for me who've come from the Father to say I am the Son of God? But it actually the argument depends on the psalm being God's word. Or John 5, uh, he says, Don't think I'll accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. You see, Jesus teaches that the Old Testament should be believed and will actually be the standard of judgment for his hearers at the last day, because it's God's word. On Mark 12, he says, aren't you in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? And that's, of course, again, where Jesus is talking about the resurrection and the argument depends upon actually God saying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And he says he's not God of the dead, but the living. The argument actually depends on the tense of the verb. Not I was the God or I will be, but I am. And it depends on the written word. He's speaking about the written word. So Jesus can acknowledge the human authors. He can even acknowledge that they are sinners. But for Jesus, what the scripture says, God says. 
And so we ought to accept the Old Testament, that is the written word, as God's word on Jesus' authority. To reject the Old Testament is actually to reject Jesus' authority. And he linked himself and his ministry inseparably with the Old Testament as being God's word. And his teaching is always in the context of the Old Testament preparation which he sees as fulfilled in himself. And if Jesus is God, then his person guarantees the truth of his teaching. And that includes his teaching on the Old Testament. And it is cumulative. You know, some of uh, the critical scholars like to pare away at the New Testament and... Uh, you know, the Jesus seminars produced a multicoloured gospel where, where they will tell you whether something's really been said by Jesus, probably said by Jesus, possibly said by Jesus and not said by Jesus at all. It comes in four colours. Right? But the problem with that is it doesn't matter how much you strip away, the Jesus you get is always the Jesus who's a first century Jew who is committed to the Old Testament as the word of God. Always, You cannot separate Jesus from his view of the Old Testament and his relation uh, to it. Now, uh, uh, some people object. They say, look, isn't appealing uh, to the scripture, in a sense, to prove the scripture circular? But it's actually not circular. We are just looking at the gospel as eyewitness testimony to Jesus and observing Jesus' attitude to the Old Testament. And so in a sense we're appealing, we're proving it by appeal to the only source we have because there is no other source of knowledge about Jesus. This is the only way you can establish Jesus' attitude uh, to the Old uh, Testament. So it's not really a circular argument, it's actually just a historical observation. Every Jesus you get is a Jesus who's committed to the Old Testament as the word of God. But some people will come back and say, well, isn't Jesus' attitude to the Old Testament just accommodation? That is, you know, he's conforming his statements to his audience's understanding. He's working with their worldview. He knows that they're first century Jews and they're committed to believing the Bible's the word of God, the Old Testament's the word of God. And so he's going along with them, but he's not challenging or really endorsing that view. Now, there are a couple of problems uh, with that view. Uh, the first is it assumes that Jesus' view of the Old Testament is peripheral to him and not essential to his message or work and therefore that he's willing to leave this error unchallenged. But that's not true. It is essential. It's central to him and his message and work. Uh, a second uh, problem, if we say it's accommodation, is that Jesus is either then misled or misleading. Right? If it's conscious accommodation, then you're actually saying Jesus knows it to be untrue, you know, all that stuff about Jonah or Sodom, but he's actually just going along with it to, you know, jolly up his audience. But if he's going to lie about that, something so central to his ministry, how do we know he's going to tell the truth about anything? Well, then you might say, well, maybe he's misled. Uh, and people want to say that, you know, if he's truly a man, wouldn't he have shared the errors of his day, right? But actually, Jesus claimed to teach divine truth. <laughs> he did. Heaven and earth will pass away, he said, 
but my words will never pass away. He who has seen me, he said, has seen the Father. He actually claims to teach divine truth in all he taught. Now, he didn't claim to know everything at that day and at that hour. No one knows. But there's all the difference in the world between an acknowledgement of limitation of error. Uh, uh, sorry, there's all the difference in the world between acknowledgement of limitation of knowledge and error. And Jesus claims that all he taught was truth. And, and thirdly, Jesus actually was willing to take on his age. You see, if this is accommodation on this central thing, how could he, in a sense, transcend his age in anything? But he does, doesn't he? He actually takes on his age, so he challenges them in their view of women. He challenges the Pharisees on uh, their teaching about the exclusion of sinners. He takes on his age in relation to messianic expectation. He's different from his age in all those things. So the idea that Jesus is just accommodating himself doesn't really hold water. It costs too much. As Tasker said, if Christ was mistaken in his view of the Old Testament, then he's actually mistaken in his view of himself and his mission. Now, I think Wenham is... Uh, uh, well, I'll conclude. I think we'll skip the seriously qualified Old Testament teaching. Uh, Wenham is right. To Christ, the Old Testament was true, authoritative and inspired. To him, the God of the Old Testament was the living God and the teaching of the Old Testament was the teaching of the living God. To him, what scripture said, God said. And if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, uh, then you have to think that actually what Jesus teaches and believes about the written word, the scriptures, ought to be what you uh, think and believe. When we come back, we're about to break, we'll see how the apostles share their master's view of scripture and we'll also see how what they believed about the Old Testament also applies to the New Testament and then we'll start to think about what it means.